2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Bill Griffith in for
3: Kelly Evans today. Here's what we have ahead for you on The Exchange with jobless benefits expected to expire, evictions beginning, and a stalled stimulus plan should investors prepare for a rocky month of September. We have both sides of that story coming up. Plus, our out-of-stock segment, deck material maker trex is soaring wait till you see this stock more americans are looking to spruce up their yards we're going to talk to the ceo about whether the demand can last and look at their expansion plans still ahead plus this hour ESGs under attack facebook takes on australia and new york city's debt crisis that's all ahead here on the exchange What we begin today's markets more records again, modest gains. Dominic Chu crunching the numbers for us. Dom?
4: I mean, modest is all right, I guess, these days. It just keeps going higher and higher, Bill. And as you pointed out, another set of record highs here. Green across the screen, modest fractional gains, but it still doesn't take away from this notion that markets keep on climbing higher. So the S&P 500 still above that 3,500 mark here. But look at the NASDAQ, 11,897. We're almost close to putting a 12,000 handle on the NASDAQ composite how is that for COVID 19 lows versus today? That's a big deal here. One of the places we're watching better housing and home sales data coming out for the month of July earlier this morning has put a bid to some of these big homebuilder stocks. Lennar up three percent, KB Home up almost three percent, Pulte up two and a half percent, Toll Brothers up two and a half percent. You get the picture. That housing story is still very popular, a tailwind for the markets overall, and. I know it's tiring now, but let's talk about Apple. Let's look at the chart up here. Three and a half percent gains, another record high, $133. Right now, this company is worth about $2.28 trillion. Just to put in perspective, Bill, because I know you like this, at the pandemic lows, the market value of Apple was around $982 billion, with a B, not $2.8 trillion, with a T. And to put that into further perspective, it's basically added more than an entire alphabet, Google's parent company in market value just since the lows. I'll send
3: things back over to you. You know, I forgot to order a Nasdaq eleven thousand hat, and now it's going to be too late. I, I'm, I'm going to need a twelve thousand hat. You need A twelve thousand to change like, yes. my order there. Thank you, Dom. <laughs> you got See it. You later. So as we enter this new month, there's a new wall of worry awaiting stocks. The uncertainty around the future of uh, enhanced unemployment benefits, along with eviction moratoriums across the country ending, and of course the stalemate regarding that new stimulus package in Congress. But with new all-time highs, as you just saw, for the S&P and the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ 100, will investor demand for return outweigh any of the potential risks out there? Joining us right now with their thoughts on the markets, Nancy Tengler, Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tengler Investments, and Jack Manley's Global Market Strategist, at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Good to see you both folks. Thanks for joining us. Nancy, you had to have been very pleased. I know one of your tenets, the reason the market continues to go higher is because of the liquidity out there and the low interest rates. You had to have been very pleased by what the Fed said last week, yes?
0: Well, yes, um, but as a citizen, I'm a little bit concerned uh, that the Fed actually thinks they can... um, sort of average and manage inflation on an average basis. But we had written a piece in the middle of July that said why this rally still has, may still have legs. And it was due to the just surge in money supply and the liquidity that the Fed has, you know, pushed into the system. So I don't think that's a permanent answer no. uh, to fundamentals. But I do think that uh, in the near term, it continues to drive things up.
3: Jack, stand by for a second, because speaking of the Fed, we have some Fed
5: speak to tell you about, don't we, Steve Leisman? Yes, Bill, thank you very much. Lael Brainard, um, speaking at a conference at the Brookings Institute, giving a really strong signal that the Fed uh, will do more. She says the Fed has to pivot from stabilization to accommodation uh, and that's kind of a little fed speak for what we've been doing in the markets has been to even markets out not really to uh, help the economy grow even more uh, and so she's really suggesting that she' was on to say that the strong pace of job gains appears to have slowed and that the economy faces considerable uncertainty with risks tilted to the downside uh, and that further fiscal support that would be from Congress and the president are key factors for the outlook so there she is urging. additional. And just a couple other things here. She says the uh, current Fed policy, uh, first really Fed person to say this in the wake of the new Fed policy, could have avoided prior rate hikes. Very interesting comment there. And she suggests the Fed will in the future pursue opportunistic reflation and will try to minimize the welfare cost of job shortfalls. But uh, Bill, I'll end it there, send it back to you, just saying that uh, Brainerd making a really strong uh, uh, signal there that uh, the Fed would move to additional accommodation maybe as soon as September. You think they're going to cut Next rates at th- th- some point this month? I don't think there's any more rates to cut. They're not going uh, negative, but uh, well, additional quantitative easing would be the thing I would suggest. All right. Thank you, Steve. Always good to see you. Jack Manley, what, what do you think? I mean, here it, it's
3: already been established that they are going to be more patient uh, about uh, cutting, raising rates in, in the future. Uh, but are your palms starting to sweat about valuations in the stock market?
6: Well, you know, I, I admire the Fed's commitment and everything that they've been doing recently. Uh, but what I think is important to remember, and we've been saying this for a while now, is that the Fed is making sure that an economic crisis doesn't also become a financial crisis. This is ultimately not the Fed's battle to fight. I mean, it can t- keep rates low. It can keep uh, expanding its balance sheet. It can help risk assets in that way. It can stabilize financial systems. But the Fed is not going to be the thing that keeps retail sales numbers up. It's not going to be the thing that keeps the unemployment rate down. We need things like fiscal stimulus on top of that monetary stimulus to really keep this party going, I think. Uh, And so the the, the absence of an agreement on fiscal stimulus, uh, at least as of right now, is is a little bit worrisome when it comes to the overall outlook for things like sentiment uh, in the back half of this year.
3: Nancy, of course, technology is still leading the way. Uh, We've established the the continued rise of the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ 100. It's a favorite of yours. But how much longer? What's going to continue to power this sector?
0: So, yeah, Bill, I mean, I think some of the valuations have gotten a little bit kooky. I I own Salesforce. I can't really explain to you why it was up 26 percent after reporting earnings. Um, Well, going into the Dow
3: didn't hurt, I guess.
0: Uh, well, and, and it was up that the previous day on that announcement. Yeah. But, you know, Zoom today with revenues up 355 percent year over year. I mean, listen, I think at some point we will transition within the tech sector uh, to some valuations that are more attractive. So we continue our overweight because, you know, if you look at tech CapEx versus old economy industrial CapEx, it's starting to to move past that as industrial capex comes down. So you have to be in the sector for the long term, but in the near term, I expect we're gonna see some valuations get uh, adjusted somewhat.
3: Jack, we mentioned the wall of worry that we may be facing in the market here. For you, one of the great walls that you're worried about is China and the trade situation. We haven't heard much about it this year, but you think that's gonna be a a bigger issue as we get closer to the election, yes?
6: Yes, and, and the fact that we haven't heard a whole lot about it this year is one of the things that I think is so worrisome. When we came into 2020, we knew there was an election on the horizon in November, but we also assumed that trade tensions would continue. And one of the interesting sort of uh, byproducts, I suppose, of, of the covid pandemic is that trade tensions have come off a little bit. We got that phase one trade deal inked with China at the beginning of this year. So far, that is still more or less intact. Very clearly, uh, uh, some combative uh, attitude between the U.S. and China on other things like technology. But in terms of trade, like what we saw in 2019, 2018, we haven't seen that manifest uh, just yet or really come back in that sense. If it does, I think there are some risks. I mean, we saw how disruptive a trade war was in 2019 and 2018. Germany almost in a recession last year without the virus. This could cause some problems.
3: We will see. Jack Manley, Nancy Tengler, again, good to see you both. Thanks for joining us today.
6: Thank you. Thanks.
3: And let's turn to another force that's been shaping the markets this year, especially the individual investor. Mom and pop trading is at a decade high right now, powered by free platforms. You know about them. Robin Hood. We got lockdown boredom and a once-in-a-lifetime investment opportunity that's been out there lately. But among all of the trends, COVID-19 has accelerated. The retail investing boom is perhaps one of the hardest to measure. What impact has this rise had on the markets? Let's drill down on that question. Nick Majuli is chief operating officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Nick, good to see you. Thanks for joining us today.
7: Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it.
3: So, regale us, how much is individual uh, investor behavior up this year? How much does it contribute to the market this, this year in the United States?
7: So, retail trading last year was about 15% of total volume. And this year, in the first six months, they've estimated, someone at Bloomberg estimated that it was about 20%. Um, and on some days, Citadel Securities bounce up to even 25% of volume. So, you're seeing a, a big increase from last year, for sure.
3: Is that good or bad? I mean, you know, the the, the, the long-time mantra on Wall Street was that the market hits a top when the public gets in. You know, the, the you have the irrational behavior of the markets. Is that where we are right now, do you think? Is that what you're saying?
7: I don't think so. I think retail investing, retail investors specifically, have been out of the market for a long time. And now they're just starting to get back into it, get more interested in it. I think it's great that a lot of young people are getting involved in this. And I don't necessarily see signs that this is like... Oh, the same type of bubble behavior that we saw in like the late 90s. I think that was far, far more beyond what, what we see today.
3: And we should point out, I mean, individual investor uh, participation in the markets in other markets around the world is much, much higher than it has been here in the United States, right?
7: Yes. In Asia, it's up to, I think, 80 to 85 percent. If you look at Shanghai or you look at Korea, um, and that's, yeah, that's compared to 25 percent. It, that's just night and day.
3: But do investors have it too easy right now with the free trading platforms? You don't have commissions that you have to pay when you trade. Are they treating it like a video game right now? Is that the
7: problem? I think there is some of that going on. I'm not going to lie. I think one of the biggest um, hypotheses out there for why this happened is because all the sports spending went away. And so a lot of traders got into this and now they're like, this is my new thing I do. And they're very involved at the same time, you know, Free commissions, I think, are great overall, and so some people can be abusing it, but I think a lot of people are just doing it to learn, and I think it's going to be a good a net benefit regardless of what happens.
3: And I, I know I'm sounding like a nervous Nelly by bringing up all these issues, but let's recall that it was in 1999, right at the peak of the dot-com boom, that we started to see the rise of the online trading companies at that time, the E-Trades and the trades and so forth. Are we there again?
7: I, I think it's a very different environment. I remember that was after a massive bull market for multiple years. And yes, we have had a, a decades-long bull market, you know, ex-coronavirus. Um, but I think I think it's very different now because people are getting involved now, and you're not seeing the same types of valuations that you were seeing. And some of them are, some companies have that, but I think across the entire market, you're not seeing the same crazy valuations that you're seeing at
3: 99. All right. And i'm sure that rate the room is going to appreciate that you made your hotel room bed before you came on the air here with us today nick majuli with uh, ritholtz wealth management thanks for joining us nick
7: thank you
3: see you later uh coming up as americans were forced to stay home many decided it was time to spruce up their backyards and they turned to trex to do so the company has soared this year has it ever And as others have pulled back, it's expanding its business. We're going to talk to the CEO coming up next. Plus, Walmart is launching its much-anticipated membership program going head-to-head with Amazon. But the service is getting more attention for what it will not have than what it will have. And Facebook takes on an entire continent. The exchange is back after this.
8: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
2: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. Today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGM, a leading global asset manager.
3: Welcome back. So far 2020 has been the year of home improvement. Everybody from the amateur do-it-yourselfer to the professional, they're all fixing up their houses. And it's causing materials, raw materials, to go out of stock, especially for outdoor decks. Trex, you know the company. It's a deck material manufacturer It certainly enjoyed the home improvement boom this year. From the March lows, Trex stock has soared more than 124%. In fact, to keep up with demand, Trex is spending on future production at a time when companies are looking to cut costs. Joining us right now in our out-of-stock segment today Trek CEO and President Brian Fairbanks. Brian, good to see you, thank you for joining us today. Great, thanks for having us on. How much is your business up this year and do you think it's simply because of the COVID pandemic?
9: I don't think it's simply because of the COVID pandemic, but coming through the second quarter, we saw a growth of 7% and then we guided to a 13% at the midpoint through the third quarter of this year. With people moving away from the cities, Uh, They seem to be looking to have more outdoor living spaces further out in the suburbs and has definitely driven the demand for composite decking. But your stock, and I know
3: CEOs don't like to talk about their stock price, but I mean, you've obviously seen what has happened. Your stock acts like you've had much greater growth, or at least the market's anticipating much greater growth down the road. Are you?
9: Well, we've had great growth. If we look back since 2015, we've grown our revenue at a 14% annual rate. During that same time, we've grown our EBITDA by 20%. Uh, So it's been impressive growth in the past. What's even more exciting is, as we look forward, the conversion of wood to composite products in the future. Today, only about 20% of decking is used with Trex composite products. So as we move forward, we see a large conversion opportunity.
3: But you have had a problem getting enough uh, 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 production going to meet the demand that's out there. Has that capped your growth? to some degree?
9: We announced a capacity expansion in mid-2019, that we would start to see some of that capacity come in in the middle of 2020. We saw that come on in June. And then early 2021, we'll see the larger amount of that capacity come on at our Virginia facility. Would we like to have more capacity today? Absolutely. But we're well down the road to building more capacity to service that expanded demand
3: because you obviously feel like this demand is going to last for a while. And that goes back to my question, whether you think it's COVID related or not, uh, because people are stuck at home. So they're going to fix up their house. But when the when the pandemic finally goes away, do you think demand will continue to grow that, that at that
9: level? We do. There's an absolute trend towards wanting better quality and higher aesthetic materials on the outside of your home. We also introduced our Enhanced Basics and Naturals product beginning of last year, which were designed to directly appeal to that wood buyer. We absolutely saw that happen starting in 2019, and that demand has expanded further in 2020. So we see that there's more to the consumer than just this current pandemic time frame where people are spending more time at home.
3: What kind of competition do you have in your niche of the market right now? And, and, you know, how do you measure that competition that's out there?
9: Uh, It's a fairly concentrated industry. There's about three companies that make up 85 to 90 percent of the overall composite products industry. And Trex is about 50 percent of that marketplace.
3: And what's your goal? What kind of market share do you want?
9: Our goal is to take more market share away from wood. 50% is great within the industry. We see that we can capture more, but the much larger opportunity is taking that 80% of decks today that are made out of wood.
3: Interesting. Great stuff. Brian Fairbanks, CEO of Trex, thank you for joining us again today. Appreciate it. Thank
9: you. Appreciate it.
3: You bet. So coming up, more companies are choosing to rent their equipment rather than buy it as the economy remains shaky at this point. We're going to look at one stock that's benefiting big-time during the push to save cash. And as U.S. debt soars in corporate America, we're going to look at some of the names in the S&P whose balance sheet is loaded up with borrowed cash. Coming up.
10: At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need.
11: Is there anything you can't do?
10: Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything.
0: At least that's good. The
12: UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
11: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
3: Welcome back to the exchange. If you're just joining us, modest gains for the major averages today, but enough to keep the S&P and the NASDAQ into record territory there following that very stellar month of August. So we're beginning September with some pretty good gains as well. Here are some of the movers that we're watching this hour. Shares of Penn National Gaming, they are higher after being initiated with a buy over at uh, Craig Hallam Capital. The firm is pointing to online gaming opportunities in the U.S., which they expect to grow 10 times over the next decade. Shares of Blumen Brands, they are higher on a set of upgrades, including from Deutsche Bank, who upped the stock to a buy. Deutsche cited underperformance, and it sees a 40% upside from here for the restaurant chain. And staying with food, shares of Chipotle hit an all-time high today. That stock is up 60% so far this year up nearly 140% just since the March lows. Muli caliente. (laughs) To Sue Herrera (laughs) for a CNBC News update. Oh, muchas gracias.
2: (laughs) Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. We begin in Washington, where Attorney General William Barr is imposing new restrictions on national security surveillance of candidates for federal office or their staffs. The restrictions are part of broader changes to the DOJ's procedures in response to shortcomings in 2016 during the Russia investigation. COVID-19 is increasing in children. That's according to a report from the American Academy of Pediatrics. From August 13th to August 27th, more than 70,000 new pediatric cases were reported. That's an increase of 17% over the last two weeks. The report also showed that 30 states reported that at least 10% of their cases were children. And French warplanes flew in formation over Beirut's port today, spraying the colors of smoke colors of the Lebanese flag, and this all comes ahead of official talks between the two nations on ways to help relieve Lebanon's economic crisis and rebuild after last month's massive blast. You are up to date, Bill. It's good to see you. Nice to to see you,
3: Subi. Thank you. Mm -hmm. See you later. Uh, So we have this new report by Bank of America revealing that U.S. corporations now have a record $10.5 trillion in debt, either through bonds or outright loans. Uh, The amount is a stunning 30-fold increase from 50 years ago. So who's sitting on lots of borrowed cash right now? This is a look at some of the names in the S&P. With the highest debt-to-equity ratio, H&R Block is among one of the top companies with a debt-to-equity ratio, you ready, of 4,920. That stock is down 38% this year, despite reporting better-than-expected earnings in July. Also on the list, Wynn Resorts, the casino operator, has a debt-to-equity ratio of more than 2,000. While that stock has seen a rebound in the past month, it is still off by more than 30% for the year. Finally, O'Reilly Auto Ticker symbol O-R-L-Y. The uh, stock has a hefty ratio of 700. It's up only 6% for the year, but a whopping 86% since its 52-week low. There you are. Coming up, Zoom's Zooming revenues, Walmart's pitch against Prime, and Facebook's fight down under. All that and much more in today's Rapid Fire when the exchange returns in just two minutes. Let's catch you up on a few of the stories that should be on your radar. You know what that means. It's time for Rapid Fire here with their take on all of this. Dom Chue's with us, Mike Santoli, and Julia Borston. Good day, good people. Good to see you all. So we start with the aptly named Zoom. Zoom video surging on blowout earnings today. Revenue growth surged 355% in the second quarter. That gain beat Zoom's total 2019 income and the number of customers with 10 or more employees grew by nearly 500%. Zoom also boosted its revenue forecast by 30%. Shares are climbing more than 30% today, and they have gained more than 550% this year. This is 2020 now, Mike Santoli, not 1999. But boy, these numbers should look like that, right?
1: A lot of the numbers in certain ways in terms of how fast this company has piled on the market value. And clearly the market's seeing that this is now going to become, in the market's estimation, the next kind of indispensable, inescapable platform for business. Uh, so it's not so much, oh, people start going back to work next year and maybe they're going to you know stop paying for their Zoom subscription. Uh, implicitly, not only is the market saying with this valuation that all those people are going to stick around, many more companies are going to come on, but that they're probably going to also displace some other types of services and applications that are already out there, whether it is messaging or something else. Because right now, even with the newly projected earnings for 2022, yeah. uh, it's 150 times earnings for Three years from now,
3: Dom, I love this. You know, uh, uh, some of the houses are jumping in now, raising their price targets. They're raising their uh, their buy ratings and everything. Goldman Sachs had a sell rating on this stock and they've been dragged kicking and screaming now to a neutral rating on this. Talk about being behind the curve on this one. Yeah,
4: that's pretty much their way of saying mea culpa, my bad, right, (laughs) in this whole process because our clients have now lost out on a huge, massive opportunity to the upside. Uh, But I mean, to the certain point that we're talking about here, this notion that these companies are the future, they are pricing in so much more of an expectation that they will become ubiquitous in all forms of communication, that's what you're seeing in the stock price today. The market value of the company is already staggering. We can call it a mega cap, if you will, now. Right, right. It's $125 billion in size. That makes it, and I know this is not a fair comparison, but from a market value perspective, it is now the same size pretty much as Lowe's, the second biggest home improvement retailer in America. And so when you talk about the notion that there could be a bubblicious aspect to many of these markets, Zoom, yes, it's pricing in a lot of growth, but I'm not sure a lot of people can grasp the concept of just how big it's gotten in such a short amount of time.
3: All right, let's move on to our next story. Walmart taking on Amazon Prime, even though they say they are not, announcing details of this new membership program to be called Walmart Plus. The subscription service will cost $98 a year, and it includes perks like free shipping. With minimum online orders of $35 and discounts of up to five cents a gallon on gasoline, which is big in California. It's set to launch September 15th. Can anyone really take on Amazon, though, Julia? And, and, and I wonder, are, are people really getting a lot for this $98 a year? They already have low prices and great service at Walmart, don't they?
13: Well, Bill, I would say this maybe is not directly taking on Amazon. Maybe Walmart is right. Maybe this is really for the customers who haven't fully made the jump to Amazon Prime yet. I'm an Amazon Prime subscriber. I get so many packages a week, I don't even want to admit it. But this is maybe for people who still go shop at Walmart stores. And I would point out one of the key perks is enabling Walmart Plus members to skip the line at the store. This is addressing people with the understanding that they're going to be shopping in store and online. These are not people who've mo- moved all their purchasing to online like I have right now. So I think this is really much more for a hybrid customer and for people who are those core Walmart customers who want to have the additional functionality. Maybe they've been experimenting with how to shop online during COVID, but this is really to give them everything they would need and extra discounts when they do shop
0: in sco- in-store.
3: M- Mike, I was interested, the chief customer officer was saying that essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, she's, they're not going after new customers. They're, they're trying to mine more dollars out of existing customers right now.
1: Yeah, kind of a souped-up rewards program. You could also think of it a little bit the way Costco, right? You Obviously, you have to pay the membership fee to Costco just to go there in the first place, but trying to make it as beneficial to re-up for $12.95 a month or, or the $98 a year, uh, just to get those benefits. And I do think it's definitely exploiting the store base. I mean, you're talking about discounts on gasoline. Amazon's not going to offer that.
3: Yeah. uh, But, Dom, uh, we have to admit, Walmart has not had a great track record with some of these programs that they've had in the past that they've started and then abandoned very quickly.
4: So so here's the thing. What they've done now is they're not trying to go after the new customer, like you said. This is very much, you know what, when I first saw the stuff come out and I, I first read the press release, I thought this is like the fast pass at Disneyland or Disney World, right? You're already going after the target customers that were going to to go there originally, and you're giving them more perks to do so. I don't know if I have to pay the $98 a year just to get the free shipping from walmart i think as long as i spend a certain amount of money i don't have to be a member and i still get free shipping on walmart this is going after those core walmart customers so if this is to work i don't think it's really taking on amazon prime i use walmart sporadically when they have better prices online i use them in store quite a bit this is going to maybe encourage me to use the in-store aspects more
3: trips on the way home i know about you yes Uh, Let's move on. Uh, Facebook threatening to block users and publishers in Australia from sharing news on its platform. It's in response to this proposed law that would force the company to pay publishers for their content. It's a move that Facebook says is unfair and could lead to price gouging from media companies down there. Julie, when I first saw the headline, I thought, oh boy, you know they're going after uh, trying to stop fake news. But no, this is all about money, isn't it?
13: Yeah, this is about the real news, Bill. This is about (laughs) the real news that, that is shared from news outlets on Facebook in the Facebook news feed in Australia. And I think the key thing here is that a lot of people would say that Facebook and Google have really crippled the publishing business, the traditional news business, the kind of news you want shared on Facebook and Google, because they're allowing people to read little snippets and share articles without them necessarily being compensated. So this bill would, Facebook says, would be really damaging because it would allow the government to mandate certain minimum prices. And it would let publishers ultimately decide how much they want to get paid without having a proper negotiation with Facebook. So this continues and builds on an antitrust suit that the Australian government is already already having with both Facebook and Google. And this is something that's been pushed by News Corp. But I would say some other publishers say they'd rather negotiate directly with Facebook without having the government involved. So it'll really be an interesting one to watch, Bill, and not only to see how this turns out, but to see if other company, countries jump on the same bandwagon.
3: Yeah, that, I mean that's the thing, Mike, is, uh, you know, Facebook's uh, sort of leading the charge here to see how the sharing of news, which goes on on all social media platforms, essentially, Uh, Now somebody's going to have to pay for that at some point.
1: Right. Uh, Yeah, at some point along the chain, presumably somebody's going to have to pay for it. But it definitely shows where the power lies uh, in this relationship, I think. Facebook completely willing to say, fine, we won't just carry uh, all these news links. uh, And the news publishers probably would be the bigger losers uh, out of that as opposed to Facebook suffering or their users suffering necessarily because the volume of everything else on the platform is so much greater.
3: Indeed. Next topic, a sign of the times, a growing number of companies are opting to rent equipment instead of buying it outright as economic uncertainty from the pandemic drags on. The proof is in the tape. Check out shares of United Rentals, one of the biggest players in this game, up more than 200 percent from its March lows, including just a 30 percent gain in the past three months. Seema Modi, this is your story. You're stepping in to tell us more about this. Uh, it's a growing trend right now, isn't it?
12: It really is, Bill. It's not just Airbnb that's benefiting from people looking to rent versus buy. contractors that work in construction and engineering are increasingly renting large scale equipment because they simply don't have the foresight as to what demand will look like in the long term. Think about how many companies slash their guidance in the second quarter. So without that uncertainty as to what demand will be like, it makes more economic sense to rent uh, a lot of this equipment. In case you were wondering, Bill, a bulldozer can cost anywhere between forty and $160,000. Then you have to pay for insurance, a place to house it. Sometimes you have to hire a mechanic to then service it. Uh, so it can get very costly to buy a lot of this equipment. And so that's why you're seeing more people in the industrial world look to renting versus buying. And it's in fact something you saw right after the financial crisis as well.
3: I'm, I'm writing that down. I'm, I, I think I'm going to get two more bids on that bulldozer. Yeah, you I'm, never know. I'm if you have some heavy lifting it. in your exactly. backyard,
12: and maybe Dom yes. has something similar to do. You know, whatever it may be. But uh, this is something, a trend that we're really seeing take hold.
4: I'm in the market for a backhoe, guys. Just okay. so you know. Yes, on that estate of
3: yours, there, as you build your your own golf green, I'm sure. Uh, Mike, do you have any idea? Now we mentioned United Rentals. How big is this market o- overall for rental of stuff?
1: I mean. I don't know specifically how big it is, but I do know that that United Rentals has always been one of the best plays on a recovery in the construction and industrial economies. Uh, And it's proving that way again. And I think it also says something about the the corporate uh, desire, priority for financial flexibility in this period. They basically drew down all their bank lines back in the spring, didn't know what was coming next, took on a lot of debt if they could. And now it's about deciding whether you want to, in fact, do capital investments. Might be too soon to feel like you have the, the clarity on what the man's going to be to do that.
3: Dom, I think back to January and February as we were all thinking, OK, so what's this pandemic going to mean to the stock market? Where Who are the winners and losers going to be? This is not one I think was on many people's radar screens.
4: No, no, but it plays into this whole theme that the pandemic has either accelerated or really exacerbated existing trends. The idea that you didn't want to have a capital asset on your books and then depreciate it over time. Instead, by paying a rental fee, you could pretty much expense it right away. There are certain tax advantages to having this idea of using rental as opposed to owning it. But this this, the whole idea behind the rental market is about maintaining, like you said, that flexibility out there. If you don't know what's going to happen in the future, why not just pay by the hour and do it that way? And for United Rentals, there's going to be a lot of other ones out there. So this whole idea of Equipment finance is probably going to be a big one going forward, especially if interest rates stay the way they are right now. Very low.
3: Julie, I can tell you have a burning thought here before we move on.
13: I do. Bill, this is a trend that we have seen across so many different parts of the economy, the shift from ownership to access. We've seen it in the consumer economy with Airbnb, rent the runway. We've seen it with the way that companies treat office space, the whole idea and rise of WeWork, although, of course, that's a very different situation right now. And I think what's really interesting is in a lot of ways, we've seen these rental companies enable both consumers and corporations to get access to a higher level of service. Maybe the people who are renting bulldozers are able to get a better bulldozer than if they had to figure out how to buy one themselves. Right. And I think we are in- increasingly seeing the transformation of the economy towards one of sharing and rental and the fact that that does enable a higher quality of service or, or a higher quality product if you're only paying for a piece of it. I
3: just hope Mrs. Chu has her videotape going when is uh, out there working his backhoe. We're going uh, to
4: Diggerland. We're taking our kids to Diggerland nice. as soon as they can do it. What so. a dad you are. See
3: my and by thing? the way, Bill, if yes. this
12: all plays out, if I would just say, if this, all this plays out, this is going to really hurt Caterpillar's margins. Already, they saw a 50% decline in North America revenue, whereas United Rentals saw a 15% decline. So if people rent more, it's the agricut- agricultural equipment players, ag, deer, and cat that could really get hurt. That's
3: a good point. Thank you, Sima. See you later. Finally, Tesla, you have probably have heard, says it's going to sell up to $5 billion in new stock as shares continue their electric run. The company says that the new shares will be sold, quote, from time to time and at market prices and that it will issue directives to banks on when to sell those shares. Despite dipping lower today, Tesla is up, as we all know, nearly 500 percent this year. It's finance 101, Michael, when yeah. interest rates are low, you issue more debt. When stock prices are high, you issue
1: more stock. Yep. The market has implicitly been uh, begging and daring Tesla to do this. And it took this much of a gain for them to just issue, by the way, only about 1% of its market value. Uh, $5 billion is, is a little over 1% of, uh, of the market value. It is an interesting test for one reason, though. There's a general presumption here that Tesla at its size, it's just a matter of time before it gets inducted in the S&P 500. Most people assume in conjunction with that, the company would do a share offering, which would ease the way for index funds to actually get their allocations without having to sell everything else in the index. Very messy. Facebook did this on the way into the index as well. Uh, But this is an interesting test because if $5 billion took a little bit of a froth off the top of this stock, what would a bigger offering do if, in fact, one comes down if they get into the index?
2: All
3: right. Got to move at this point, folks. Thank you all. Always good to see you. Dom Chu, Mike Santoli, and Julia Borstein with today's edition of Rapid Fire. Still ahead, there's an ongoing debate about the viability of New York, in a post pandemic world financially that is and we're going to take a look at some clues lurking in the municipal bond market coming up but first the labor department is taking bold steps to limit retirement plan sponsors from voting on certain issues we have details on that coming up Welcome back. The Labor Department is proposing two new rules that could limit so-called ESG investments in 401ks, and some of the world's largest asset managers are pushing back on that. Bob Pisani joins us with details on that. Hello, Robert.
10: Hello, Bill. Good to see you as always. The first proposal from the Department of Labor would limit how retirement managers can vote on proxies. Now, you know, these annual meetings, they're often dominated by proposals for companies to adopt sustainable energy or be cognizant of climate change, things like that. The DOL is proposing a rule change that would not allow proposals to be voted on unless there is an economic impact on the retirement plan. And the argument is... ESG type stuff, environmental social governance type stuff like sustainable energy would not be directly beneficial to the plan's participants. The second is a, a broader attack on ESG in general. The oil industry, for example, has looked askance on ESG because it tilts toward... Fo- Twilts away from fossil fuels and towards sustainable energy. Labor Department is proposing another rule that would require fiduciaries to always put economic interests ahead of these so-called non-pecuniary goals. They are like the goals expressed by ESG on environmental and social issues. Now the investment industry is pushing back on these proposals. In a July interview, BlackRock's Larry Fink said our job is to maximize returns for clients. More and more clients believe climate risk is investment risk fidelity investments is also pushing back they said the DOL's proposal was wrong to assume that ESG investing sacrifices returns and wrong to assume that it increases risks and promotes goals unrelated to financial performance so the bottom line here guys is ESG is growing in leaps and bounds and it's starting to get some pushback from interests that are having uh, their their interests uh, affected by that I'm missing something. Why is it up to the Department of Labor to propose this? Why not the SEC, for example? Um, because they're talking about financial retirement plans here. So under ERISA, which governs the, is the rules that govern uh, how these fiduciaries can act within these retirement plans, I there's see. certain rules and regulations. And that's how the Department of Labor got involved. They're in charge of the whole ERISA issue.
3: Got it. Now I understand. Good to see you, Bob. Thanks, Bob Pisani.
10: Thanks. And
3: coming up, he's one of the men who helped save New York City from going back ramp back in the 1970s. Former New York Lieutenant Governor Richard Ravitch joins us with what's got him worried about the chances for the Big Apple survival this time around. He's in the mix of it again. And a reminder, hey, you know, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two minutes. Welcome back. There have been plenty of high profile debates over the future of New York City financially. But if you want to get a better picture of where things stand right now, take a look at the debt market. Robert
14: Frank joins us with that part of the story. Hey, Robert. Hey, Bill, great to see you. Uh, New York uh, York City sold over a billion dollars in long term bonds last week. And the interest rate was 1.45%. That's pretty low. But if you look a little deeper, there are signs that investors are getting nervous about New York. The important number in the muni bond market is the spread. That's the difference between the interest rate and the rates for AAA bonds. Now, the spread on last week's bond was 72 basis point. That is more than double the spread pre-COVID. So investors now see twice as much risk investing in New York City now than they did pre-pandemic. It also means that New York City's borrowing costs could become a drag on the economy. It has $38 billion in outstanding debt obligations right now. The city is asking the state for permission for another $5 billion. That would be a huge new supply for investors who already hold a lot of New York City debt. Now, if the city has to spend more to service that debt, That means less capital spending, possible service cuts, possible layoffs, and again, that downward spiral that we kind of saw in the 1970s. But at 1.45 percent, we are not even close to that. But again, some signs of anxiety and concern by investors, Bill.
3: Indeed. And speaking of the 1970s, we have a gentleman joining us right now who was there in the mid-70s. Thank you, Robert. Uh, See you later, Robert Frank. Uh, Richard Ravitch uh, is former lieutenant governor of New York. He's former chairman of the uh, Metropolitan Transportation Authority. He's now a director at the Volcker Alliance, and he's a member, a new member of this new uh, panel that uh, Mayor de Blasio has put together to try and figure out how New York City can recover from the current financial crisis. Richard Ravitch, good to see you. Thank you for joining us today, sir. Its nice to be with you. And as I mentioned, I mean, you were around in the mid 70s. You were among those who helped revive New York City's uh, efforts to to get back on its on its feet. Compare the two crises, this one right now, to what you had to go through in 1975. Are there comparisons? Is one worse than the other? Totally different
8: circumstances. 75, the problem was that because. Governor Rockefeller had dif- difficulty distinguishing between borrowed money and appropriated money. He relieved the city of the necessity of raising taxes to meet its budget expenditures by changing the law so that the city could borrow any amount of money that the mayor estimated he needed to balance his budget. So over the period of time, Between 1966 and 1975, the city borrowed, the banks underwrote, about close to $7 billion of bonds, the proceeds of which were used to cover holes in the operating budget of the city. Right. After the urban development corporation crisis in January, where the state was prepared to let this public entity go into bankruptcy rather than take money uh, to pay its debts, uh, the banks got scared and they met with Governor Kerry on May 2, 1975, and said they would no longer underwrite the notes and bonds of the city of New York. Right, right. The city had maturing debt obligations almost every month. For the balance of the year, so we created a new entity um, called the Municipal Assistance Corporation by legislating the sales tax away from the city of New York and made it payable to the municipal assistance corporation is
3: any of what you did in 1975 applicable today now as i mentioned you're on mayor de blasio's new commission now to try and help figure out how to recover this time around can you use any of the techniques you used last no, time
8: absolutely not it, it, totally different circumstances it's irrelevant and by the way uh, mayor de blasio's task force no longer exists
3: okay we, but, but if you were uh, asked again to come up with a solution, what would that be? I mean, you're not a big fan of them issuing more municipal bonds, by the way, are you?
8: No, I'm not. I would say borrowing for operating purposes was prohibited by the laws we enacted following the summer of 75. And that is not a solution now. There is only one solution, and that is federal aid. I'm sorry, I wish I could say that <clears throat> there should be others. We need a control board again. We need to have outside people evaluate the city budget. Right. And there has to be pressure on the politicians in New York to cut expenditures.
3: And as you well know, uh, right now, any aid to sti- cities and states is stalled. In the in the Senate, the House passed a bill uh, several months ago. It's stalled in the Senate. And, you know, Mitch McConnell has said that maybe it's just uh, the city should think about filing for bankruptcy this time
8: around. Well, no, actually, McConnell said the state should file for bankruptcy. But Mr. McConnell doesn't know anything about the Constitution of the United States because states are not permitted to file bankruptcy. Um, cities may, if they're authorized by their states, um, and only 30 out of 50 states have authorized their municipalities to file.
3: So you think Um, that some bigwigs from Wall Street, for example, should go to Washington and make the case to get some state aid for New York City. Is that the idea?
8: There are a lot of very successful people who raised and gave a lot of money to McConnell and to Trump, and that they ought to go to Washington and say, we we can't survive without some short-term aid from the federal government for our mass transit system, um, and we are willing to have an, an oversight mechanism um, <clears throat> that measures uh, the reasonableness of uh, right. the city budget. All right. Richard Ravitch, I wish we had
3: more time. Uh, It's an important topic, uh, one that you could help solve, I'm sure, but uh, I have to go at this point. Richard Ravitch, again, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it.
8: My pleasure. Thank Mm -hmm.
3: you. I got it. That does it for The Exchange.
2: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
11: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses,